Good morning everyone. That's probably one of the longest readings we've had for a little while. I wonder how many of you have actually spent much time reading the book of Lamentation. I know last year when I preached through the book of Revelation, that was the first time I've ever preached any part of the book of Revelation. And this morning is the first time I've ever preached through any part of the book of Lamentation as well. The title itself kind of doesn't bring about a sense of excitement, a lament, a passionate expression of grief or regret. But we know that all of God's word is profitable and we do experience times of of grief and regret and we want to know what the word of the Lord has to say to us. So let's come before God in prayer uh, that he might profit us as we look at this topic this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call upon you as, as our Heavenly Father. That you are our possession. That you are ours if we are a child of God. We thank you for your, your wonderful promises towards us. We thank you that we come before the one who is in control of absolutely everything. We thank you that you are the God who says, do not fear. We thank you that you care enough to give us insights into the experiences of others that we might learn how to press deeply into you. Uh, so work in us, minister to, to us through your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. How are you going? Oh, pretty good, thanks. Now, how are you really going? It's such an Aussie thing to do, isn't it? Your default answer without a second of thinking is, oh yeah, good, thanks. Either because you think it's just social convention. When they say, how are you going? They don't mean it, just like a greeting of hello. Or maybe it's just a case of a reflex, hoping it will divert the question about how are you going? I do it all the time. Most of the time without even thinking either presuming that you didn't really want the answer to the question, or maybe I'm not sure if you care or want to know the things that occupy my thoughts and my mind when I'm left to my own thoughts. Remember that old saying, a problem shared is a problem halved. It's a nice saying, but I wonder how the mathematics actually stacks up. I mean, if the idea is if I share my problem with someone, automatically somehow 50% of it goes to the other person, then my experience would be that if I'm going through tough times, I'm going to tell nine other people and I've only got 10% of it, 90% of it will be theirs. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way at all. But as we see Jeremiah, who I'm convinced is the, the author of Lamentations, comes to a conclusion that A problem shared is a burden gone if the one whom that problem is shared with is the Lord. Now I need to be very clear about what I say there. I'm not saying that as you bring your request before the Lord, all of a sudden all of life's troubles disappear. We know from experience that's not what happens. But if we know who we belong to, the weight of burden of that is lifted from us. We know without, we know with total certainty that it cannot and it will not crush us. 
there can be certain hope in the middle of trial. That that burden can be lifted and taken off us. And if that is the case, then we want to know about that. Now, the situation in which Jeremiah is writing is Jerusalem has been overtaken. The city has been destroyed in 587 BC. The temple has been destroyed. People are taken away from a Gentile people. These are not people of faith. Have been taking taking the people away into captivity. This is a major moment of lament for all of Jeremiah and all of the Jewish people. It's not just a military defeat. We're told very explicitly in the scriptures. God raised up the Babylonians to judge and punish a rebellious people who were not listening to the word of the Lord. And the book of Lamentations has got five acrostic poems, that is, poems where each sentence begins with the letter of the alphabet as they work their way through, lamenting the situation that has come as the Babylonians have destroyed their city, their temple, their walls, and taken them into captivity. But Lamentations 3 differs in two ways. Firstly, it is longer than all of the others. All of the others are 22 verses where there is one verse per letter of the alphabet. In Lamentations chapter 3, there are three verses per letter of the alphabet. And it is written in first person. You'll see I. Now, while there's a lot of debate about whether or not this is Jeremiah speaking on behalf of himself or on personifying the nation on the whole. I'm probably more inclined, even though I'm in the minority, towards being Jeremiah. But it suffice to say that where a nation suffers, all of the individuals who constitute that nation suffer as well. So this morning we're going to look in three ways. From verses 1 to 20, we're going to look at being afflicted by God. Verses 20 to 20 to 42, waiting on God. And then 43 to 66, being redeemed by God. So our first point, afflicted by God, verses 1 to 20. If you're alive and you've lived in the world that I live in, you have suffered. All of us have suffered in some way, whether it be small, whether it be big. Maybe even right now you're in the middle of something really, really tough. Whether it's the loss of loved ones, health issues, financial issues, personal attack from other people or people close to you. It's not really a a surprise. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Likewise, Peter says, don't consider it as though something strange were happening to you. But just because Jesus promised that in this world you will have trouble, doesn't mean that all of a sudden it's instantly easy. Something we can dismiss, something that doesn't affect us whatsoever. The things that happen around us do affect us. And unfortunately, in some Christian circles, people feel or are told that it's not right or it's a lack of faith to express pain and hurt and despair. Don't believe that. That's not true. Jesus himself wept. 
God regretted that he'd made mankind in Genesis chapter 6. And look through all of the Psalms and look through Lamentations. You see wonderful expressions of despair and pain. The Bible's got countless examples of utter despair, utter anguish that are paired with strong, solid faith. Feeling these sorts of emotions is not a sign of a lack of faith, nor is they feeling these things a sign of the presence of faith. But what they do is create an opportunity to express that faith and for that faith to shine brightly. Now our goal today isn't to learn about how to regulate our emotions, but to learn from this passage how we can stand firm in the hope which God provides in the middle of them. Now I'm really glad we have a book like Lamentations because if I was to speak on this topic from my own personal experience, it would be pretty light on. I mean, it's hardly going to be a life-changing message talking about deep grief and lament if I talk about my dog dying last year. But there's nothing petty about the experience of Jeremiah and his fellow Jews. They haven't just lost their homes. They have lost the city, the city which God had given them. The very temple, the place where they would go and worship God. And be taken by a people who have no respect for God whatsoever. To be slaves to those people. To not only miss where they've come from, but to be mistreated and in great extensive hunger. Their skin and bone is the way they're described in the book of Lamentations. And even more disturbing, if you've read the whole book, you get to a a phrase in, in chapter 4, verse 10, where it says, Even the compassionate women were boiling their children for food. Can you just even imagine how desperate of a position you would need to be in for that to even cross your mind? This is the setting in which Jeremiah speaks to in Lamentations chapter 3. And there is a great expression of despair. Look here in chapter 3 verse 8. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. And then go down to verses 17 to 18. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Can you imagine being at that point? Maybe you can. Maybe you have been at that point where you feel like all of your prayers, God's just not listening at all. Like to a point where you feel like, peace, I just don't feel it at all anymore. It's been so long since I've experienced happiness that I don't know what it is. This might be exactly your life experience, either at some point or even right now. But what things makes even more difficult, when we read through this chapter, where does this difficulty and this suffering have its origin? When you quickly read through the chapter, one thing you'll notice is there's a repeated phrase, He has. Jeremiah is very clear where this has come from, where the source is. 
You see it in the opening three verses. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. The lamenter is very clear that the things which he and his brothers and sisters are experiencing comes from the hand of God as an act of wrath and discipline towards a rebellious people. Now this is the God who describes himself as being slow to anger. His heart is to warn people, to, to draw them and call them back to himself. We see this isn't just a, a rash moment of anger from God. When you look at Jeremiah chapter 25, we see the background, we see the warning, we see the heart of God. Reading from verse 3 down to verse 9, it says, For 23 years, 23 years, from the 19th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants and the prophets, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands and to your own harm. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all of the surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. You can't exactly accuse God of acting rashly. For 23 years... His heart was to call the people, return to me. Remain in this land, enjoy my blessings. But for 23 years, the people wouldn't listen. Even though God had outlined what would happen, what would be the consequences if they didn't listen. And so the people didn't listen. And what they're experiencing now is in line exactly with God, what God promised them would happen if they didn't listen, if they didn't turn. There's nothing accidental or unfortunate about the circumstances. The lamenter kind of speaks of God in his pursuit as being like a lion, a bear or a, or a hunter with an arrow. It's specifically targeted at them. Even going so far to say that it's an experience of the punishment for sin in verse 39. But we need to be very careful not to presume that every time a person goes through hardship and suffering that we presume that is because God is somehow disciplining them for their sin. You cannot make a direct connection between those two things as a golden rule for all time. I mean, look at the example of Job. Before his great suffering, he's described as a man who walked blamelessly before the Lord. 
Or in John chapter 9, when the disciples say, was it because of this man sin or his, or his parents or somebody else that he's born blind? And Jesus says, it's neither. But the glory of the Son of God might be displayed in his life. But there's a reason why we can connect the suffering with sin on this particular occasion is because God, through the prophet Jeremiah, explicitly tells us so. But whether or not the hardships that we endure have anything to do with our sin, the response remains the same. We don't have to be taken by an ungodly people into captivity in order to think about what does it look like to express our faith? What does it look like to stand firm in the midst of trials? We've spoken about a robust faith that can stand in the middle of deep, desperate despair. So what does that look like? Let's look at verses 21 to 42, waiting on God. These verses have got many profound reminders that would do us well to hear them, to heed them. And I would encourage you, if there's anything in particular that God impresses upon your heart as we look at these verses, that maybe that's something you need to commit to memory, that you might have that in your banks, that you might have that ready available to you, ready in times of need. Beginning with verses 21 to 22, not long after the the lamenter has spoken about how he's lost all sense of peace and hope and he's forgotten what happiness is. Verse 21 to 22 he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. What is it that that brings him a certain hope in the middle of this deep despair and calamity? Knowing that the steadfast love of God never ceases. Neither do his mercies ever cease. This was his foundation for any sense of hope. But it also comes with a degree of warning for all of us too. Of the dangers of abandoning the idea that God loves us. Abandoning the idea that maybe his mercy is still consistently toward us. I would warn you about being in a position where you even question God's love for you. The very thing that is the foundation for Jeremiah is knowing that God loves him. That was what brought him hope. The knowing that his love never ceases. That even in the situation that Jeremiah is in, he looks around and he's like, God still loves me. God is still showing me his love, showing me his mercy and his compassion. And never believe the lie that God has stopped loving you. Never believe the lie that God's mercies, you've reached a quota, you've gone that step too far. These are the foundations, Jeremiah says. Even in the middle of the darkest days, he says, therefore I have hope. They don't ever end, not even in this situation. But they are new every morning. Great and infinitely great is his faithfulness. That even the darkest day we ever experience is not affected by his ability to love, his mercy, his faithfulness, his covenantal love that he's set upon his children. We have hope in his never ending love, mercy, and faithfulness.
because he is ours. Jeremiah writes in verse 24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will have hope in him. He is my portion, he is my inheritance, he is my possession, he is mine. And if you are a child of God by faith, you don't just have a relationship with Christ, you have Christ. You are assured of his ongoing everlasting love. His mercy, His compassion, His grace. How precious is that? Don't let go of it. Don't buy into the lie that God has stopped loving you. Anyone who has even gone for a moment to doubt whether God continues to love you can tell you how hopeless that feels when you abandon the very thing that we need for hope. No matter how bad things get, in this setting where it's surrounded by loss, pain, despair, Jeremiah says there are three things that are good. Remember how it's in an alphabetic acrostic where there are three sentences that all begin with the same letter? Well, verses 25 to 27 are all begin with the word good in the Hebrew, that is. Not in our English, they don't begin with the word good. They all begin with good. These are the three things which are good. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, and it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It says these are three good things in the middle of hardship. Firstly, that the Lord is good to those who seek him and wait for him. Keep seeking him. Keep waiting for him. He is good. He is perfect and he's holy. He can't do anything but good. Regardless of what the situation looks like, he is working towards you for good. Although, like broccoli, Brussels sprouts, just because something's good for you doesn't necessarily mean it feels good or is enjoyable. Don't wander from God. Seek him. Wait for him. Secondly, he says it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Later on in verse 31, he says, He will not cast off forever. Or to steal the language of the New Testament, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It is good to wait quietly and patiently because the Lord is the Saviour. He is the Rescuer. He is the Deliverer. But I think there's two reasons why our heart wants an instant response to remove us from our hardship. One is because it's personally uncomfortable. But I think there's a second one that we're probably reluctant to admit. I think sometimes we want an instant response because our natural assumption is if something doesn't get done soon, it's going to be too far. It's going to be too much. But we belong to a God to whom there is no such thing as too far gone to rescue to restore, to redeem. And our third, it is good to bear the yoke while you are young. It is as in the yoke of God's discipline is good. He's experiencing the, the discipline of God. A yoke which was placed around the necks of animals was designed to guide them in the right course. So if they were to stray, it would lead them in the right direction. 
And Jeremiah says, it is good to experience this discipline if it is going to lead us on the right paths. And it's good to experience at a young age that we might walk on the right paths for the rest of our lives. In this time of waiting, Jeremiah encourages a couple of things. He encourages us to examine ourselves, to repent. Even if you're not undergoing some form of discipline, this should be a daily practice for all of God's children. Examine ourselves. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 139, Search my heart. Search me and know me and see if there's any grievous ways within me. Lead me in the ways everlasting. If the punishment or the yoke is good to guide us into the right place, embrace it. Embrace it patiently. In verses 39 to 41 he says, Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. Don't let your trial drive you from God. Let it drive you to God, who is good. Wait patiently for his salvation. Let its discipline do its good guiding thing. The God who redeems, saves and rescues. Which leads us to our third point, redeemed by God, verses 43 to 66. Now, it would be easy to presume that once you get through 21 to 42, where you see that central hope, which is the central hope and the structure of the entire book, you might think, oh, it's all happily ever after from now. But I actually like the fact that it returns to focus primarily upon the despair, upon the, the seeming chaos that surrounds him. Having faith in God doesn't mean that situations instantly become good and perfect the way we'd like them to be. Knowing his never-ending love, mercy and faithfulness doesn't mean that the trial comes to an end. Rather, it is the strength to stand up, to stand firm in the middle of it. It is the strength that says, this will not crush me. This will not overtake me. The Lord is mine and I in his. Holding on to God doesn't make the situation vanish, but it will take that weight, that crushing burden, off in knowing the one to whom you belong. And then in the middle of the despair, the patient waiting, he says in verses 57 to 58, you came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. We see that as a common comfort throughout the scriptures. Do not fear. Sometimes accompanied with the words, do not fear, for I am with you. I don't think of any time where God says, do not fear, because this is the specific way I'm going to solve or work through this problem, the specific way I'm going to deliver you or rescue you. He says, do not fear, because I am with you. That's all you need to know. Know who is with you. Don't fear. If God says, the one who has all power says, do not fear, that's enough. I don't need to know the how of how he's going to do it. I just need to know that he says, I don't need to fear. I'll wait patiently for his salvation. So what do we do 
what do we do? What do we think of a passage like this? Well, as we wrap things up, I want to say two things. I want to say something to people who are already trusting in Jesus. And I want to say something to those who are not yet trusting in Jesus. To those of you who currently trust in Jesus, I want to remind you that it's okay for life's hardships to affect your emotions. It's okay to feel despair. It's okay to feel depressed. It's okay to feel the loss and pain. There's no shame in feeling that way. Nor is there any shame in, in expressing those feelings. If anything, it puts you in good godly company like Jeremiah and David. Godly lament might have all of those emotions. But, and this is the but, Godly lament always has hope at the centre. Hope because Christ is mine. I will not suffer eternally. It does have an end because Christ has secured my eternal salvation. He has paid in full the price for my sin on my behalf. It will come to an end. He is my saviour. He is mine. His, his love and his mercy never end. Godly lament never loses hope. Because we belong to him. He has covenanted himself to us. He promises his never ending love, mercy, grace, patience, faithfulness. As Paul was writing to the church in Thessalonica, they were dealing with those who had, had lost their lives. And he says to them in chapter 4, verse 13, Don't grieve like the rest who have no hope. And so this morning I would say, in life's darkest moments, by all means lament. But don't lament like those who have no hope. This is an opportunity to proclaim the glorious excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ. That people might see that you have a hope that transcends your deepest, darkest days. That there is something about this Jesus that is clinging on to in a time which everyone in the world says, that looks to me hopeless. Yet this man or this woman has hope. Don't let your trials drive you from God. Let them drive you to God. Who works towards you with goodness. Wait patiently for his salvation. If he's correcting you, allow that good correcting work to take place. He loves you. Don't believe the lie that he stopped loving you if you were a child of God. Don't believe the lie that his mercy has, has reached its limit. You've just gone that one sin too far. His love, his mercy never end. Great is his faithfulness towards his children. And secondly, I want to say something towards people who haven't yet placed their trust in Jesus. We see for the Jewish people that God sent people to warn them for 23 years that if they were not to return to the Lord, there would be consequences. And over time, those things played out exactly as they said. But it's in the very character of God to desire to restore, to save, to redeem. But every single one of us 
are born in a condition that needs rescuing, saving, redeeming. The Bible calls this our sin nature. It's that part of us that says, I don't want God to be God. I want to be the one who decides everything about the way I live. We turn our back and we shun the one who has given us life and breath and everything. And God warns us time and time again through his words as I am right now. There is coming a time when everyone will need to give an account before him. Jesus makes it very clear. He says, there will either be some who go to everlasting life and others who go to everlasting punishment. Yet it is the heart of God to restore. That's the very reason why he sent Jesus Christ into the world. That Jesus Christ bore the punishment that we deserve to bear ourselves. That by having faith in him, we might not only not have the punishment, but we might have him. We might have Christ, his everlasting love, his everlasting mercy, his faithfulness and eternity with him and all of his blessings forevermore. Whenever you reject the God who gives life and blessing, it will always lead to death and curses. And along with God and his word, if you have not restored to him, and give him thanks for the wonder provision in Jesus Christ, I plead with you to call upon him to forgive that you might get to know him, know the creator of the universe, and enjoy fellowship with him. God desires to restore us. The way the Apostle Peter expresses it this way, in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Now we live in days when we're reminded, we hear the phrase about how lives matter. All lives matter. Even the lives of people who might have greatly mistreated matter. And I don't want any of them to experience the punishment that their rejection of God deserves. I want all of them to be restored to God, to know the joy of, of a relationship with him, of all of his blessings and his forgiveness, his loving kindness and his mercy. Not just because it's a better option than the punishment, but because Christ himself is inherently attractive, that we might know the creator of the world, the one who is abundantly, perfectly, infinitely good, in all that he does, who is care towards his people, who is everlasting love, mercy and grace, that he can be ours, he can be our portion, he can be our hope, he can be our strength, he can be our eternal life, a life forevermore. Let's come before God in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get to see your interactions with the rebellious people from, from centuries ago. We thank you that we see your heart to restore and to save. Lord, we thank you that you at times will discipline us for our good to guide us back to you. 
the source of all goodness and blessing. And so, Lord, we pray for all of us during our hard times that we will know the certain love of God even in the middle of those times. We will know these certain unending mercies and faithfulness. We will know that you are indeed our portion, our possession. We thank you that, that Christ has died for our sins once for all to bring us to you. But we thank you for what you have done. We thank you that there is no situation which can overcome us. Because Lord, you are our hope, you are our rock, you are the one who is in control of all things. And so Lord, we, we commit ourselves to you. And we call upon you as our Lord, our Saviour, our Redeemer, our hope. In Jesus' name, Amen.